And I want you to draw a circle, just a circle, all right? So take out a pen or a pencil and draw a circle. And then after you draw it, I want you to hold it up to the screen. Let's see your circle. Can you hold it up to the camera? All right, I see Samuel's circle. Yeah, all right, I see Miriam's circle. I see the Kramer circle. Here's mine. Um, now, um, I, don't, I don't see your circles that well. I can see some of yours, but um, I don't know if you notice this about my circle, but it doesn't really look very much like a circle, does it? It kind of looks more like an oval or an egg. It's not even really round enough to be an egg, is it? And I wonder if some of you guys had a hard time drawing a circle this morning too. There's a nearly well, perfect one in the Kramer house. Is there? Let's see that one. Let's see, let's see the the circle that you got there. Ooh, that's real. That's quite good. All right. Who drew that one? Did you draw that, Theo? Great job. All right. Well, um, I'm going to release you kids in just a moment. But before I let you go, um, I want to tell you about an artist. And the artist's name is Giotto of Florence. He was a 14th century painter, architect, and sculptor of immense talent. He broke free from um, all the medieval ways of doing art and became the first great artistic genius of the Italian Renaissance. And when the Pope of his day asked Giotto to prove his worth as an artist, Giotto grabbed a brush and dipped it in red paint and drew a perfect circle freehand. Now, initially, some were offended by the simplicity of the drawing, but the Pope himself understood the message. As one commentator wrote, Giotto's proof of his mastery was his freehand circle. It was a concise way for him to summarize his enormous technical skill. And from that day forward, as his legend grew, the phrase rounder than Giotto's circle became a Tuscan saying. So sometimes, the best way to answer a question is not to speak forth, but to show forth, to manifest the message, to incarnate the truth to the eyes of the watching world. I want to ask you a question. What speaks more powerfully? A dictionary definition of the word light or a bright light shining in the darkness? And what communicates God's grace more effectively? Just for God to say that our sins are forgiven or to send his only son to rescue us at great cost to himself. Now I wanna release you kids right now. I, I bless you in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. And I pray that he would use you to manifest his light to the world, amen. Amen. So this morning, this is what the prologue to the Gospel of John is all about. Rather than pointing to a definition of God, it points to a manifestation. Instead of mere words, we find the Word made flesh. Will you please turn there with me to John chapter 1? Open it up in a Bible or in a Bible app and look down with me at verse 14. 
we've been introduced to this mysterious word who was with God and was God, these verses that are so important for us to understand the divinity of Christ and the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, but at, on verse 14, it begins to speak more pointedly. It says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. In other words, divinity itself was made manifest in time and space. Amen? And as a side point, let me ask the question. This is just a rhetorical question for you to think about for a moment. When was it that the word became flesh? When was it? Historically speaking, we believe this happened in real time space. When was it that the word became flesh? What famous feast day in the church's calendar? Now, some of you might be thinking, why it's Christmas day. But you would be wrong. It's not Christmas Day because the word became flesh nine months before that at the Feast of the Annunciation, right? When the Holy Spirit came upon the Virgin Mary and the power of the Most High overshadowed her. In other words, it was at Jesus's conception that the word became flesh. That's why the early church referred to the Virgin Mary as Theotokos, literally God-bearer. And that's why John the Baptist leapt in his own mother Elizabeth's womb when the pregnant virgin drew near to her. And this pre-birth incarnation is also a major reason why Christians are called to value all human life, right? From womb to the tomb, because the incarnate word of God came into the world in that way. So on this fourth Sunday of Advent, we remember the Virgin Mary from whom uh, whom the, the angel Gabriel called highly favored, because no higher dignity had ever been bestowed upon a mortal person, whether man or woman, for she carried divinity about in her womb. Can you believe it? And she, she fed the Son of God from the very sustenance that she partook of through an umbilical cord. I, I mean, I can barely think such a glorious thought without losing my breath. So looking back at John chapter 1, verse 14, it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. As a firsthand eyewitness, the Apostle John can say, we have seen his glory. Now, this Hebrew concept of glory, it's a, it's a very tricky word. It's a very tricky idea. It carries with it a sense of, of weight, of holiness, of radiance. The famous pastor John Piper points out that it's almost impossible to define the word glory because it's more like the word beauty than it is like the word basketball. So if someone wants to know what basketball is, you could give a long and detailed explanation of the ball and the basket and dribbling, and they would get the basic idea and be able to differentiate it from soccer, right? But he says, you can't do that with the word beauty. Because there are some words in our vocabulary that um, we can communicate with uh, that, sorry, so there are some words in our vocabulary that we can communicate with, not because we say them, but because we see them, right? We can point, right? 
if we point at enough things and see enough things together and say, that's it, that's it, that's it, we might be able to have a very common sense of beauty. But when you try to put the word beauty into words, it's very, very difficult. So to summarize, I think we might say that the word glory is manifestational in its very nature, and therefore its definition is elusive to us. But in Jesus Christ, the glory of God was put on display. People could point to him and say, that's it, that's it, that's it. And there were moments in his ministry where his, where his glory truly was shown forth. We have seen his glory, John says, glory as of the only son from the father. So in the incarnation of Jesus, the weighty things of God, the invisible God and the holy things of God were made manifest, invisible, and radiant. But glory is not the only attribute of God that takes on flesh, as it were, in Jesus Christ. It's also true of the grace of God. This word grace is used four times in these verses, actually in rapid succession. Jesus is described as full of grace and truth, verse 14, as bringing grace upon grace, verse 16. And again, in verse 17, it says that grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So clearly there's something about this word grace that John believes is absolutely essential to understanding Jesus's identity and Jesus's mission, right? But here's the interesting thing that I learned this week for the first time. After this initial eruption of the word grace uh, and its close tie with Jesus here in the prologue, the word never appears again throughout the entire rest of the Gospel of John. Not one instance. Now, the word glory appears several more times, and the word truth is all over the place in the Gospel of John. But after the prologue, the word grace is completely absent. And so that got me to wondering, where did all the grace go? Right? How could a word that was so crucial to the introduction be so absent from the rest of the story? Now, compared to the word glory, the biblical word grace is relatively easier to define. When speaking of the grace of God, theologians like to speak of God's pardon on the one hand and God's power on the other. So God's grace is his merciful willingness to pardon our transgressions, right? That's God's grace. And God's grace is his transforming power that makes us more like Jesus, so by God's grace, we are justified. There's the pardon through faith, as our reading from Galatians 3 describes. And by God's grace, we are sanctified, transformed to look more and more like the children of God that we are in Christ. So grace is, grace is both pardon and power. But even more than this, here in John 1, we learn that grace is ultimately a person. That's why the word grace is... I mean, sorry, uh, why is the word grace absent from the rest of the gospel? Because Jesus Christ is grace personified, right? He is the living definition of grace. So having introduced us to the word and the prologue, the rest of the story shows us what it is, not by definition, but by manifestation, amen? In this way, the apostle John 
is like the Italian artist Giotto, right? Except that his perfect circle is Jesus Christ. It's as if he's saying, do you want to know what grace is? Grace is, it's offering salvation to a Samaritan woman, even though she's been divorced five times and the man she's living with is not her husband. John chapter four. Do you want to know what grace is? Grace says, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. John eight, grace washes the feet of his disciples, even the feet of his betrayer. John 13, do you want to know what grace looks like? It looks like the sinless son of God being willingly stripped, beaten, tortured, and nailed to a cross for the sins of the world, for your sins and mine, though he himself was sinless. Do you want to know what grace is? Look at Jesus, the Gospel of John tells us. He's the perfect circle. Grace incarnate. That is why when you're trying to explain the gospel to someone, if you've ever tried to explain the gospel to a non-Christian friend, it's actually best not to linger too long in concepts, but instead to point quickly to Jesus himself, right? And especially to his sin-bearing death. And as we consider this, I wonder how you're feeling in need of the grace of Jesus this morning. Perhaps there's a story in the Gospels that strikes you as particularly good news. Perhaps it's his story about the good shepherd, right? Leaving the 99 to go and search for the one sheep that was lost. Perhaps you need a reminder today that you are that valued to the heart of God. Perhaps it's the story about the prodigal son returning home to the embrace of his father. Perhaps you hear an echo of your own doubts in the man who said to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. Perhaps in the midst of the pandemic, you feel like a leper in need of a touch from Jesus. Perhaps it's actually the message of the cross that you need to hear again and remember grace personified in the words of Galatians 2.20, that Christ loved me and died for me, that Christ loved you and died for you, not just for the world, but for you. So this morning, we've seen that sometimes the best answer to a question is not a definition, but a manifestation, not in mere words, but in the word made flesh. Through the coming of Christ, the invisible God has made himself visible, right? We've learned that the word glory may be hard to define, but Christ has put God's glory on display. We've learned that the word grace, which only occurs in John's prologue, is not a simple pardon and a power, as glorious as those truths might be, but even more so, God's grace is a person. In the person of Jesus Christ, the grace of God is made manifest, a perfect circle for the world to see the genius and the glory and the grace of God. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.